Are you ready for the show, John? I have already done it. I dreamt it all last night. What? I've done the whole you, show you... already, except for the groaners, because I couldn't find them, so I couldn't finish the show. But other than that, I've already done the show. Okay? So I am ready. <laughs> well, I'm and... expecting I'm expecting big things out of you. Well, uh, I'll, I'll do better than that. I'm going to let you participate in the show, too. Okay. <laughs> I have to ask, was I participating in your dream or did you just do it by yourself? I actually, you participated, but very little. <laughs> <laughs> Normal show, in other words. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's get the show on the road. We got a new Sounds song. Good. Here it comes. Brand new song. That's good. Yeah. Boy, that, doing, show, that show, that, that doggone song really packs yeah. a wallop. Oh, I saw what you did there. I saw what you did there. Double entendre. I think they call that, right? Oh, a little tease. Okay, well, let's just welcome everybody. This is The Bro Show. My name is Jerry. And my name is John. Yeah, we're actual brothers. Uh, you'll be able to listen to this every Saturday morning right after the uh, cartoons and cereal. Yeah, we're available. The show will drop. You will mm. be able to listen to it. And uh, I also feel the need to uh, do a public service announcement. That we do the show every week. We do it in seasons. And this is the season of the werewolf. And as a public service announcement, we are uh, we give out important information. In this case, it's going to be the next full moon. And that's going to be in seven days, four hours, 13 minutes, and 48 seconds. In case you want to mark the calendar, it's uh, January 25th. So from the day this show is published, it'll be five days, four hours, 13 minutes, 35 seconds. Okay. That sounds good. I've got my calendar marked. I've got an alert. Do you? I've got an alert on my phone. I'm ready. So you're going to do what? You're going to stay indoors, correct? At night? Yes, I am. I, it, it's, okay. it's dangerous enough outside in Chicago, so it'll be easy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess it would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay, so uh, you know what? If you want to subscribe and get notified every time the show drops, all you need to do is go to www.bro.show, and there's a subscribe button, and you just give your name and your email address, and you will be notified every Saturday morning when the show drops and then you can listen to it at your leisure, but you'll be notified. And that's the only notification you'll get from us. And it's gentle too. That's what's so nice. Surprisingly. Hey, what t-shirt are you wearing? I am wearing the season of the whale. The one with that big whale coming out of the water. www.bro.show. Okay. Well, that's very nice. It's very thick, too. So I really, it's kind of a nice oh. one to wear. Okay. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm wearing Season of the Tiger. Oh, nice. And I've all, wow. I'm also drinking coffee from the Season of the Tiger coffee mug. Oh, no. 
Yeah. You're fully equipped to do the show. And, and you know, yeah, the mug is black and with the tiger stuff on it, and the shirt, the t shirt is black. So I'm like, we're coordinated. Totally. Jeez. I feel a real like fashion a plate. Exactly what I was going to say. Oh, no, that's scary. All right, who's our sponsor, John? Hey, our sponsor is the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Their mission is to protect the lives and advance the interest of animals through the legal system. And how do they do this? They accomplish this mission by filing high-impact lawsuits to protect those critters from harm, provide free legal advice to other lawyers, and boy, they do need it, and support tough animal protection legislation. And you know what? This organization comes through. It delivers because it's got swag. It does have swag. It's got great T-shirts. You can go, we have uh, links down at the bottom of the show notes that will take you right to where you can buy a T-shirt. All the proceeds from your purchases of their swag or their merchandise goes to help lawyers defend the rights of animals. Our stuff's there, too, by the way, at the bottom. We have wonderful werewolf T-shirts and coffee mugs. Hey, we got a really, really cool werewolf story, John. And uh, yeah. I'll do a little do a little preamble here, and then you, okay. can, you can pitch in and ask some questions and stuff like this. Sure. You know, in, in, in a quick review of werewolf literature and uh, c- cinematic spectacles and, and other things, there's a trend. At first, the first uh, information about lichens or werewolves had the lone werewolf. Right. Okay? The wolf man. It was mm. the werewolf. Yes. The lone werewolf. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what happened in that scenario was the, the, the poor werewolf was isolated. He was in torment. And it wasn't good. It was not an ideal situation. But I thought about it some, John, and here's my theory on this. I think particularly in the 1930s, when a lot of these uh, really great werewolf pictures were made, the thing about it is, is we were going through a period of time where uh, psychoanalysis through Freud, Freudian methods and stuff like that, and a dream analysis with Jung and things like that. We had these archetypal images and stuff like I think a lot of the screenwriters and, and people were enthralled by all this. I think it kind of swept through California and Hollywood and everything. And I think it affected a lot of the movies. So what happened is a lot of these creatures went through very dramatic versions of what everyday people went through in their daily lives, you know, but greatly amplified. And this beast within kind of thing. And, right. and being misunderstood and being isolated and all that, that was there. Now, what happens is time goes on. What's happened in more recent times with movies like Twilight and before that, a mov- movies like Wolfen. I don't know. Mm. That's a classic, by the way. Wonderful movie. Albert Finney in it. And uh, Gregory Hines. So what happened in those movies is they depict wolf packs. So oh. this is... Yeah, this is, in, you know, that correlates with the psychology of trying to get a world that's more peaceful, more order. There's too much chaos. And wolf packs represent the ultimate in order. They have an alpha. They have betas, people who serve them. 
they have deltas, people who do the grunt work like drones kind of, and then they have omegas at the bottom of the pack, generally are the butt of lots of jokes and stuff like that. So what we see here is an attempt at orderly society. And you see that in books like Wolfen, because what happens in Wolfen is that these very intelligent werewolf wolves, they take care of the dregs of society, the people who are dying from disease and what have you, who are, you know, sitting around in slums and in broken down buildings and stuff like that, dying of mm. liver disease and what have you. These guys would take care of them. They would chomp them up and eat them. And, you know, they protected their territory. They took care of one another. And it was really interesting. The same thing happened in Twilight. There's a pack of werewolves. They keep the countryside free of vampires, for instance. And they hunt down rogue wolves, rogue werewolves. Wow, I tell you, you know, the thing is that I think it's so, so important to realize how much has been contributed by way of other authors such as Stephanie Meyer with Twilight and the book specifically uh, New Moon to flesh out exactly the what is going on in the real world as it relates to animals such as this, because this animal has a highly developed <laughs> social order. And we've yes. we've addressed this issue with some of the other seasons, such as the meerkats. And it's yes. time that what we do is we give due justice to the animal that we are going to have for this season, the werewolf, yes. and explain yeah. in detail. And this will be one of several episodes or sessions we will have as it yes. relates to the society within within the, the, the this animal lives. And I'm just so thankful that mm. you're able to give us some detail as it relates to the social order of werewolves. Okay. Okay. Questions? Anyone? You know what? Yes. You there? I guess my first. Okay. First question I have is: How many wolves would you say are make a reasonably good pack? I mean, is there like once it gets too big, it's too it gets a little squirrely, and they have to break off, or maybe there's not enough, and they need to get more. Perhaps you could enlighten me and the rest of the audience. I consider myself the audience since I'm answering. answering, answering All right, I see. I'd say a dozen. Uh, a dozen is a good number for a pack of werewolves. And uh, they get more than that, and then you're going to have uh, more than one alpha. Oh. You're going to have, you know, and what happens when there's more than one alpha is they'll break off or they'll fight for dominance of the, uh, of, of the pack. But if both alphas are fit and young, then there probably usually won't be a challenge. One will just break off and say, I'm going to start another pack. And then maybe a couple of people will go with them. If you've got a, if you've got a pack that's got 20, 20 werewolves in it, that's tough. You know, that, wow. that's a lot of quibbling, a lot of fighting, food supply problems. You know, you don't want that. Well, you know, it seems to me that another question I, that comes to mind is, are there in which of these categories, I come up with a category, you know, wolves have to do some work. And there's ones, is there like one of these categories that has more worker wolves than, than what I would call the, the, the typical lead wolf, second in command, third in command? Do we have worker wolves? Yeah, the deltas are considered worker wolves. Um, so those would know, be the, they, the, they, the ones at the bottom, bottom guys, right? Yeah. No, yeah, they're I not mean, omegas. They're right, they're right above the omegas. Well, wait a minute. Delta's third in line, right? Right. Okay. 
I was yeah. hoping that maybe some yeah, what? of the deadbeats could get to work with the bottom ones. Oh, the Omegas? <laughs> yeah. well, they, they work. They work. They do the okay, work, but, but uh, the Deltas do a lot of it because they're not inhibited by, you know, people snarking at them and stuff like that. Mm. But, yeah, they, they do a lot of the day-to-day stuff. A lot of it is, a lot of the grunt work is patrolling. You got to patrol the territory. Make sure it's safe, you know. Got it. Uh, and werewolves are, are also human, so they have children usually. So they've got to take care of their children. They're very defensive. And uh, they look after their own, very protective. So, you know, things like conflicts at school, scheduling, you know, and, uh, and once a month they have full moon, they all go running and you've got to take care of the kids. You know, a couple of werewolves right. have to stay behind and take care of the kids. Those are going to be deltas probably, you know, so there's, there's a lot of stuff to do. Food supply, meeting hall, you know, logistics involved in all that stuff. They get together as humans, and they're they're tight as humans as they are as wolves. We'll save most of the human stuff for a later chapter or a later okay. episode of our show. But why don't we talk a little bit about, here I am, I'm retired. I would probably be considered a senior citizen wolf. What would they I call do? them elders? They call them elders. Elders, okay. I'm glad. I'm, thank you for clarifying it. I need to use the right okay. nomenclature. I will learn. Um, so what do you think as an elder I would be doing? It's an excellent question because you ask it, of course, and you're the host, you're the podcast personality. So uh, what advice is a lot of what they do? You know, they they give counsel. That's what the elders do more of. They're not, they're not going to be, you know, hopping around doing a lot of physical work. Uh, if there's a pitched battle, the elders will fight strategically, you know, without putting themselves too much at risk. Right. But, you know, they're very altruistic animals. They they would, you know, give up their life in order to protect another wolf. So, you know, Probably, you've got that to look forward to. the young ones, too. In fact, I would imagine that maybe they do a little protect bit of the wolf. They probably do a little wolf, wolf sitting, too, don't they? Yes. Yes, absolutely. The uh, the pups are raised communally, or the children, in the case of their human form. So, uh, yeah, everybody pitches in. You know, that, that's one of the reasons, I think, in as our society grew more polarized and conflicted, you know, over the last decades, what's happened is this wolf pack approach to werewolf books and movies became more prominent. Because they do have, they have, they're not without conflict. But they have a very orderly society, right. and they look after one another and their children. Very good. I think we could learn okay. as humans something yep. about these werewolves. We could learn from them. I think That's so. That's my feeling of subject, I and think we so. will learn more. We will. How about a word, John? A. Our word is poignant. P-O-I-G-N-A-N-T. Poignant. Affecting or moving the emotions as, for example, a poignant scene in a movie. So where did I come up with this? As we were doing research for our two takes, I came up with this sentence in a review that was done by the movie we will talk about by Roger Ebert. And this example sentence is, on the surface, the movie Bang the Drum Slowly seems like Brian's song, but it is mostly about the daily life in a baseball season. The fact of Bruce's Bruce Pearson, the catcher's approach in death, adds poignancy to the scene, adds little emotion, whatever. So that is the word. Excellent word, John. And by the way, 
excellent source. Yes. I love Roger Ebert's reviews. Nobody writes reviews like that guy. The good news is that those reviews, even though he passed away a little over 10 years ago, will continue. His his wife has uh, taken over the website and got an incredibly uh, good uh, group of guys who were, you know, Roger, knew Roger well, continue to do his reviews. So his wow. reviews in, in spirit will continue, which is always good. Okay, so this is referring to a movie, which is our two takes. Hey, hey. Bang the drum slowly. What a beautiful, beautiful baseball movie, John. It is. I mean, just a little bit of the details before we get into the story. Bang the Drum Slowly is a movie that came out in 1973. It's often considered a, like a sports drama film. It's got like friendship, teamwork as they're driving, getting to try to, during a baseball season, win the pennant. It's based upon the second novel of four of a four novel set with the same name, authored by a fellow named Mark Harris. And it's considered, the book itself is considered one of the top 100 sports books. The director, John Hancock, um, Harvard grad, a theater nerd, actually went and, uh, and did a lot of studying over in England and came back. And this movie was one of his very first movies. I think the fact that it has more of a setting that you might feel would be more comfortable in a uh, could easily work in a theater, work to his his advantage. In fact, here we are. Uh, this novel came out in 1956. The movie didn't come out to 1973, but in the interim, there was a TV drama on it in 1956 uh, on TV, and it was um, on the U.S. Steel Hour, and it starred Paul Newman. So it's got that interesting mm. background. So. I think another thing that works in favor of this movie is that Mark Harris, who wrote the book, also did the screenplay. It's his only screenplay. And so a lot oh. of times you, there, there are reviewers that say, wow, this is an example of a, of a movie that's just as good as, as the book. And I think, of course, it makes sense because the author of both is the same. So what are we talking about in terms of the actual well, and the other thing we need to mention is how in the heck did we come up with this? Well, the good news is, yeah, uh, you can maybe explain a little bit about uh, the source that we use uh, because you're you're closer to that than I am because you would get the newsletter. So maybe you can just give a little segue as to, you know, what 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 allows us to do that in a way, newsletter, et cetera. Yeah, we did a show on on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's Substack uh, newsletter, and it is superb. And this is this is one of Kareem's favorite sports movies and his all-time favorite baseball movie. And he right. recommended it so strongly, he got me stirred up about it. I'd seen it a, a couple times some years back, but I hadn't seen it recently. And it's uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's funny. Uh, as as our word indicates, it's poignant. It, it moves the emotions, uh, gets you feeling and it's the team aspect of this that prompted prompted us to do the uh, the Wolfpack story, right? Because yeah, there's there's carryover, you know, in in sure the story is. here too. How they marshaled together once once one of their teammates has got a problem. Well, I think they, one of the things I love a lot of empathy for him. I I noticed that when I went back and you gave me the uh, the whole amount or the the whole thing that uh, Kareem wrote about the movie and I thought it it provided one of the best synopsis 
summary of the of the movie. And I think what we what it boils down to is as we take a look at this movie, it's about a baseball season. And within the season, we've got, you know, different players. And the key players on the team consist of a pitcher by the name of Henry, uh, Henry Wiggin. And Henry is the top. He's like t- the Tom Seaver of the team. Uh, he's the top pitcher. He makes the most money, very educated. He's written up books. And he is saddled with not a very, he might consider it originally not a very good roommate, uh, a fellow by the name of Bruce Pearson, who is like I would call the borderline uh, catcher. He's a third string catcher who's going to have enough trouble making the team. And since they are connected in terms of uh, being roommates, they decided uh, Bruce had a problem. He realized something was wrong with him health wise. So he went to Atlanta and they said, well, you better we can't quite figure out what you got. You need to go to Mayo Clinic in Rochester. So he didn't want to go alone. So he called his roommate. Henry to go with them, and they went up there, and they got some very, very stressful news. They found out that he had Hodgkin's disease, and he was incurable, and it was just a matter of time before he'd be dying. I think what makes this so cool is the fact that Henry Wiggins probably, in today's world, getting high-priced money, would throw money at Bruce's problem, but he didn't. He decided he was going to take on his own mission. He was going to take on the fact that he would be caring for Bruce during the next season so Bruce could have an enjoyable final year as a baseball player. And he went to the extent that he, uh, when they went into, you know, to start spring training, Bruce had not, uh, excuse me, Henry Wiggins, the star pitcher, had not signed his contract yet. And he was haggling for money, this and that, whatever. And finally, they said, well, we got a number in mind. And he said, okay, the number's fine. But I need to have one more clause in the movie, in the in the contract. And that clause was that whatever, if you sell me, you got to sell Bruce. If you let me go, you got to let Bruce go. We are a team. We stay together for the whole season. And so he felt that he could, you know, help him do that. And but he wanted to keep it a secret. And the other thing that's interesting about this, this team called the New York Mammoths, uh, actually, with this, a lot of this movie's filmed in New York, and you see Shea Stadium and Yankee Stadium, the old ballparks, etc. Not a lot of action on the field. That's what makes this movie. It goes through the dynamics mm-hmm. of the clubhouse. And so yep. as they do that, uh, what's interesting is that he wants to keep it. So what he does is he gets the clause in there, and the one person out of this whole movie who got actually an Academy Award nomination was the manager, Vincent Gardenia known for a variety of movies. My favorite of his is Death Wish. But the same thing, where he plays a combination of Casey Stengel, Yogi Berra-type manager, has all these funny you know, things he would say. My favorite on it is at a certain point in the movie, he says, don't give me the facts, just give me the details. You know, <laughs> such a great line. <laughs> so the manager agrees to the clause, but he says to, he says to Henry, I'm going to figure out what you're up to because there's something screwy going on here. We would say something uh, hinky, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hinky. And so as 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 the movie progresses, it, 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 he finally has to he has to let a couple of the ball players know before you know it. And this team on paper is golden. It looks like a lock. It can walk through the park and get the pennant on the other end. And it just trouble it's trouble by clicks. 
social fragmentation. You know, there's the Hispanic group, the black group, the uh, and they kind of they kind of you know constantly are conflict. And so they get off the good start, but all of a sudden they're stumbling. And as they stumble, they start getting a little bit more you know anxious and a little more fighting within. So what Henry does is he lets one of the catchers that that, that he says he says, hey, let up on Bruce. You're, you're you're ragging on him too much. And and so he says, ah, I'm going to keep ragging on him. And he says, well, you know what? I don't think you should do that because you see he's dying. So he tells one teammate, well, of course, was one teammate going to remember? So all of a sudden, you know, and he says, now you, you, you promise you won't tell anybody. And of course he says, and then later on he says, well, how did they, how did all these people find out? Well, of course I told my room, I told my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like, and so another, and so coach says, he says, "Hey, uh, uh, you know, court," and he says, "Yeah, I found out from from the other catcher. He told me," and he says, "Well, and of course, I had to tell my wife." <laughs> he told her, wife. <laughs> no, no." Everybody knows. The, uh, the bottom line is, they get it all together, they win the pennant. But what's fun, what's interesting about the movie is. That there is it, it it to me it it ends it ends and you have an epilogue of about a, a two minute epilogue it it ends with Bruce he ends up also catching more and that's kind of a miracle he plays better than he ever has it's sort of like he's going to go out with a, a big bang and he realizes it and he has in his final game he uh, he has struggled struggled struggled. And they just basically carry him through as he's catching. He's throwing the ball back to the pitcher, and it's bouncing. The last play is got a, it's a pop up to the catcher, and this is where team teamwork is shown is demonstrated to the final end. Because sure enough, just the, the, in the dugout before that, they said to the first baseman, "Hey, if there's a pop up, it's yours. It don't matter where it is. It can be you know practically it can be 20 feet behind home plate. You are catching it." Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Danny Aiello wow. played the first baseman. Um, he, he he caught the ball, and and sure enough, and that's kind of where the movie ends with respect to uh, death. Uh, <clears throat> because even though there's a funeral later on that you see in the epilogue, because Henry narrates at the beginning, uh, the star pitcher, and narrates at the end. But mm-hmm. when Bruce Paquette, you know, is in that final game, and then they show him in the hospital, you know, and they basically take a suitcase. Give him all this stuff and give him a, a goodbye. Yeah, that's that's where it ends because he's he's his death is is at that point as a ball player. It's not physical death, and that baseball players have that feeling. They yeah. And Jim Bouton reviewed this movie and he thought it was incredible. He said this is this is real. He said this is really good. So so that's a, a good word. But we haven't talked a little bit about the stars of the movie, uh, the, the 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 players who played. Mm. Wiggins and who played uh, Bruce Pearson. And that's, I think, what it makes the movie even more interesting as you hear who some of these people are, because they've gone, particularly Bruce Pearson, the actor went on to greater things. And who, who might that be? Robert what? De Niro. Robert De Niro. This, is, this movie came out before Mean Streets, uh, which is considered his, uh, his breakout movie. And what's funny, interesting about this one, can you imagine a guy playing a Bob Robert De Niro playing a a simple-minded, not so bright, tobacco-chewing little catcher who who's from Georgia, and that's what he did, and he did it. He did it yeah. so good. 
the challenge for him was to learn how to play baseball because apparently Danny Aiello helped them. And the director says, Robert De Niro learned just enough baseball to make it credible, but he, I'm sure, forgot it ever since then because he was not a big (laughs) baseball fan. So that's an interesting fellow in the movie. And then we've got Henry Wiggin, who's played by Michael Mariority. Now, if you took a look back then in 1973, you'd probably say, well, those two guys, Robert De Niro and Michael Mariority, You'd think Michael Mariority would be the one who was become the rising star that we would not we wouldn't forget his name, but it worked out just the opposite. But that doesn't mean that Michael Mariority wasn't a good actor. He uh, did well in Law and Order, and uh, and and a, and a couple other things. And what's funny about it is, if there's out of the two, the one who's got the stronger baseball background is Michael Mariority, because his grandfather played for the Detroit Tigers, and then later uh-huh. became a manager and extended his career in baseball, becoming an umpire. He's one of the few guys to do all three. Uh, so when you watched Michael Mariority play the the the, uh, the the pitcher, and you watched him pitch the few scenes that they had. You you said this knows what he's doing out there. He looks so smooth, just like you you want him to be in his because this is a guy who's got it made. So and tell me tell me a little bit about this uh, this crazy card game they had. Tegwar. Tegwar. Yeah. yeah, it's an acronym. It's an acronym uh, the, for the excellent game without any rules. The, yeah, actually, excellent, extraordinary, exciting. The that's what it is. The exciting yeah, yeah. game without any rules. And you know, quite often we talk about about, about baseball metaphors in, in other things. Yeah. This movie has its own metaphor. The, the card game is a metaphor because yeah, life is. is an exciting game without any rules. It is. It is. And <laughs> you it, never know. It, you don't know. They would use it. Gonna... They would use it to sucker people in so they could take their money and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, so that it's like in hotel cool, lobbies and. It, it, most of the actors in this, the team guys, they put, this movie was mostly filmed in New York. So you're gonna. There's a lot of theater people in it, uh, and some of them went on to to, to to bigger and better things like Danny Aiello, uh, and of course, you know, the, the main. But and but but the cast is very rich. The characters are incredible. The stories and the the, the clubhouse banter is more important than what happens out on the field. Uh, the, the, they do enough scenes on the field to kind of you know keep the flow with respect to the movie when a scene helps extend the, the story. But the, uh, but the the clubhouse stuff is what makes it work. Filmed it, and they filmed uh, both in Yankee Stadium and uh, Shea Stadium for the Mets. So when this team, the New York Mammoths, and by the way, if you take a look at their uniforms and say, well, those are New York Yankee uniforms. Guess what? You're right. They are because Yankee uniforms don't have Yankee written on them. They just have the the the, the, the New York part on it. So wow. you're 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 looking at New York uniforms. Their home field is Shea Stadium, but actually, what they did. Is they did the filming? Where did they look? Where did they do the filming? Based on who was on the road. So if the Yankees are on the road, they use Yankee Stadium. If the Mets were on the road, they use Shea Stadium. They also did uh, some on um, a little bit of a, on, uh, on spring trainings where they used Philadelphia's uh, Jack Russell Stadium in their in their training uh, complex. Uh, yeah. So t- to me, I I, I thoroughly uh, enjoyed this movie. Uh, I, I totally totally recommend it. Uh, Kareem's uh, spot on in terms of, of it, of, of, of what makes it work. And I, I just finished with a couple of things. Number one, I saw this movie. This is probably the, the only sneak preview, the only preview movie I've gone to where it wasn't even cut yet. It was it, the edits were so rough. It was unreal. The, they, the montage is nothing had been done yet. 
that's how raw it was in terms of the when I saw it back in 1973. The other thing is that 20 plus years later, they decided to do what they should have done a long time ago is write a play called Bang the Drum Slowly based upon the book. And sure enough, they did it. The world premiere was in the Chicago area at Evanston, and I went to the, the first run of it in, in Evanston and saw the play was really good. So I feel kind of a, a, there's a real connection I have have with this movie to, beyond just the, the baseball theme. So, well, you, you did it. a great job on it, John. It was almost like it's the second time you've done it. Yeah, you know, it's pretty easy when you rehearse it the way I did. Okay. Yeah, any groaners for us, John? Any I got groaners? a couple groaners. Now, these I, I found later on, fortunately. I, I didn't lose the groaners this time. So here they are. And these groaners, by the way, both of these groaners have been provided to us by Vincent Anthony Lauder Jr. And here we go. What song do you sing when a witch gets married? What song do you sing when a witch gets married? <laughs> Think of Ding Dong. Uh, ding Dong, the witch is dead. Ding Dong, the witch is wed. Wed, not dead. Okay. All right. I, I okay, now I'm not going to put pressure yeah. on the next one, but I'll, I'll just let you know that I got significant partial credit when Vince gave this to me over the phone. Okay. What do blind trains travel on? What do blind trains travel on? A railroad. Yes, railroad tracks. You got it. You got it better than I did. Oh, <laughs> All right, sir. Okay, mission accomplished.